Welcome to Angry Americans. Welcome to episode 85. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. <sighs> Breathe, people. Breathe. If you're not angry, you're not paying attention. But before we get to that, there is reason to be happy. There is reason to be hopeful. There is reason to celebrate. CNN projects Joseph R. Biden Jr. is elected the 46th president of the United States, winning the White House and denying President Trump a second term. We're able to make this projection because CNN projects Biden wins Pennsylvania. The former vice president in his third run for the highest office, pulling off a rare defeat of a sitting commander in chief. With this victory, Kamala Harris is set to become the first woman and the first person of color to be the vice president. Again, CNN projects Joe Biden will become the 46th president of the United States. Yes. Yes. No matter what Tucker Carlson or your crazy uncle says, Joe Biden defeated Donald Trump in the 2020 election for president of the United States. Yes, he did it. Yes, America did it. Yes, there is reason to celebrate. Oh, yeah. Joe Biden and Kamala Harris won. America won. We won. Trump lost. Authoritarianism lost. Trumpism lost. History is made. The good guy won. The bad guy lost. A new day for America is finally here. We can celebrate a hard-fought victory for the soul of our great country. America won the biggest battles, the states that mattered the popular vote, and the electoral vote. From Maine to Pennsylvania to Wisconsin, where Biden won, America won. Because Trump lost. I was on a mountain at the base of a trail with my wife when I found out. I saw a text from my friend Julie. It said, we did it. Julie is part Korean, part white, and from Texas. She's married to my buddy, who's a Pakistani guy from Connecticut. She's Christian, he's Muslim, and they have two young girls living in Georgia. And they were the perfect people to let me know they did it. America did it. We did it. Biden even won Arizona. He won it by about 11,400 votes. The week before Veterans Day. There are about 522,188 veterans in Arizona. And many of them did not like Trump attacking John McCain for year after year. And they listened to Cindy McCain. And John McCain got the ultimate last laugh in the battle with Trump. And veterans had his back. And they may have been the difference in Arizona and in a number of other close states across the country. 
but there was reason to celebrate. Saturday, November 7th, was a day of celebration. It kind of looked like VJ Day, Victory Over Japan Day. So maybe November 7th will now forever be known as VT Day, Victory Over Trump Day. The world was watching. And for the first time in a long time, they were proud of us and rooting for us once again. And across the country, people were celebrating. And Tombstone and John Wick 2 were on TV that night. And Notre Dame versus Clemson, and it went into overtime. And after that election week, of course that game was going to go into overtime. It was a party in my house and across America. And it felt so good. Yep, that's enough. I hope you enjoyed that 12, maybe 24 hours of joy and celebration. There was reason to dance in the streets. It was fun. It felt good. It was inspiring. It was almost 80 degrees in the Northeast in November. People were happy. People were cheering. And there was reason to celebrate. But that shit's over. There's no time to take a victory lap or nurse your hangover. There will be a smooth transition to a second Trump administration. Right. That's our disgusting Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, promising that Trump will have a second term even when the world sees the results of the election and says no. Even when world leaders are calling to congratulate Joe Biden, Pompeo and Trump and his loyalists are going down fighting. And some may not want to go down at all. So, yeah, this is not a time to celebrate. This is no time for a victory lap because stakes is high and half of America isn't celebrating and Trump is doing what he always does. And this is the likeliest chain of events from here. Maybe he eventually leaves and he claims that he's now leading the resistance and he immediately focuses himself and his base on 2024. It's the best way for him to keep his supporters galvanized and focused and relevant and fundraising. He'd also be the immediate GOP frontrunner by default. But he's not going away quietly or with honor. Yep. Stakes is high. Very high. Higher than the COVID infection rate inside the White House. And stakes have never been higher. But well done, Joe Biden. You did it. Now the hard part begins. So please focus now on calm, unity, and healing above all else. The pain across this nation is so deep. And it just intensified for almost half of our fellow citizens. We need you, Joe Biden to be the healer you were built to be. I don't believe in destiny, but maybe Joe Biden went through all that terrible pain in his life so he could help us all through ours. There's serious work to do and serious threats to the core of our democracy. And there's serious reason to worry that the next few months, as I predicted for months on this show, could be the most dangerous and volatile of our lifetime. So happy Veterans Day, everyone. President Mayhem is still in office, 
He's still creating chaos. He's still refusing to accept the results of our election. He's still destroying our country. And he's taken it to a whole new level. So I hope everyone enjoyed that one unusually warm and happy Saturday of celebration in November. Because when the sun came up on Monday, the battle may have been won, but the war was not over. When the sun came up on Monday, the pandemic reached record levels of hospitalizations nationwide. The hollowed-out Republican Party might be keeping the Senate. There were few good upsets. Lots of disgustingly crooked incumbents won. Almost half the country voted for a morally bankrupt, dangerously stupid, consistently racist scourge of a man who continues to attack our values, divide our nation, imperil our national security, and has our enemies celebrating. And in honor of his devastating and universally important and epic loss, President Mayhem did what he always does, what he's best at, the greatest political suicide bomber in American history, did what we all should have totally expected him to do. I'm your tailgate grill. Your buddy was in such a rush to get into the game, he didn't quite put me out. I see you bought the industrial-sized bottle of lighter fluid. Smart. He blew things up. President Mayhem blew things up, as he always does. Things that are vital to our national stability, our homeland security, our fight against the virus, our domestic tranquility. After failing to blow up the election, he moved on to the single most powerful, most vital, most sacred institution we've got, the Pentagon. Some breaking news. Uh, the American people may just have fired Donald Trump, but we all know the former host of The Apprentice likes firing people. And in the last few minutes, he has fired uh, his defense secretary. He's also lashed out on Twitter uh, at what he calls the lamestream media uh, for calling the election and his defeat. Well, with me now is Guy Zalestad Bunkle. Uh, Mark Esper is the defense secretary, uh, not just fired, but in this case, the tweet said terminated. Yeah, pretty strong language from Donald Trump. Same lashing out against his uh, administration officials. Actually, this was slightly on the cards. The expectation was that if Esper didn't jump, he would be pushed. Yep. The Esper was pushed all right. I've been predicting it for months, and now we've got it. President Mayhem has done it. He's fired Secretary of Defense Mark Esper. There it is. This is peak President Mayhem at the single most precarious time in recent history for our national security. Trump is firing the Secretary of Defense. And I'm no fan of the SecDef, as you know. But this massive disruption now is terribly bad for our troops and our national security, and our enemies are celebrating. But it's not just Esper. The Pentagon's top policy official, James Anderson, resigned. And that paved the way for retired Brigadier General Anthony Tata to take over policy. Now, Tata is a nasty, Islamophobic Fox News regular who called President Obama a terrorist leader. And this about sums it up, people. Right. 
<laughs> that would have been great. Broke my ankle on the way in. That sound of acting Secretary of Defense Chris Miller falling up the stairs on the way to the Pentagon for his very first day and taking his mask off as he enters the Pentagon. It's going terribly, all of it, and our enemies are celebrating. Four acting Secretaries of Defense under Trump. Four secretaries not vetted or approved for the job by Congress. Imagine having four bosses. In four years, at your job. Now imagine your job was war. The mayhem is raging now. The Pentagon is broken, and it's very likely to get worse. Because our politics is broken, too. And the election showed it. What we've got here is... Failure to communicate. Some men you just can't reach. So you get what we had here last week, which is the way he wants it. Well, he gets it. We really do have a failure to communicate in this country right now, and a failure to be pragmatic, and a failure to recognize reality. Too many people are stuck deep in their partisan camps. Too many people don't understand what really happened in the election or how to get us together afterwards. The storms are everywhere. But the storm of partisanship, extreme partisanship, is maybe one of the loudest ones that hurts us the most. And if you're listening to this show, maybe you're one of us, an independent, unaffiliated, patriotic rider on this storm of America. Riders on the storm. Riders on the storm. The political storms and divisions are not ending soon. But Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, the far left democratic socialist, incredibly charismatic and effective congresswoman from the Bronx, still fails to appreciate how this country votes outside of New York City. Says this guy from New York City, Dems won by being moderate, and she's already making plays for power inside the party while Georgia still hangs in the balance. Democrats can always be counted on to do one thing, eat their own. The election's over, and the very next day, it was time to play this music again. Democrats are already eating their own. And Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is already driving away independents like me. It's expected she'd push the party and take shots at Pelosi and others. But her friendly fire right now, before the war is even over, is bad political strategy for the Dems and for her. It's a lack of patience, a lack of discipline, and Republicans love to see it. And I called her out for it on Twitter. And so many Bernie supporters, progressives, and socialist Democrats are coming at me now after the tweets, just like they did months ago when I criticized Bernie Sanders. They're still coming after me, and they're still digging in, even after Joe Biden's victory, and even after the level of support for Trump that remains, just smashed all their garbage arguments from the last two years. 
And AOC actually tweeted back at me, which is like hitting the Twitter troll lottery. Look, AOC, I respect you. And I understand your arguments about trying to modernize the technology and the outreach of the party. And we agree on some issues. We disagree on others. But I don't believe that you can separate your message from the messenger, especially in this political landscape. Ideology and technology capacity are linked. And you're not the leader to make this case. You're not the leader to move purple communities. But as I shared on Twitter, she can make a huge impact on issues that are uniquely important to purple or independent communities. Maybe the biggest opportunity of all is on veterans' issues. And Veterans Day just happened. And maybe we could have found a Republican and worked together there as a start. Especially now, I'm working to unite. And I threw that out to her on Twitter. But nothing. Crickets. One of my friends broke it down in a text. He said to me, Democrats are morons, always dividing the vote. Republicans are assholes, but they band together and get their way because of it. Now, that is how so many all across America feel, especially right now. A large and increasing number of Americans, and especially young Americans, are independent and unaffiliated. We're rejecting both parties. We want more options. And Marianne Williamson jumped in, the former presidential candidate. An interesting post-election Sunday on Twitter for me got a whole lot more interesting. She tweeted, how do you know they won by being moderate? There is no particular evidence for that. How do you know they wouldn't have won by a bigger margin with a bolder message? That's my Marion Williamson. The Dems won the presidency with a moderate candidate. Is that somehow up for debate anywhere on earth right now except in Donald Trump's head? Now, for what it's worth, throughout the debates, I commented on Angry Americans and on Twitter that having Marion Williamson on the stage actually helped the Democrats reach more new and some independent voters. Who knows how many, but some. And the Dems needed all the help they could possibly get to be Trump. But despite the results of the election, on both sides, in both parties, the only thing that continues to spread across America faster than the coronavirus is the stupid. It's on both sides all around, and deep inside. So the stupid continues to spread. An inauguration on January 20th is a long way away. And a vaccine is likely even further away. And President Mayhem has another 73 days or so to blow up, dismantle, dishonor, and disrespect an incalculable number of things that are vital to our future. And you should be afraid. Hopefully that fear will keep you vigilant because some folks still aren't getting it. Some folks are living on the high of the election. Some folks just had their brains scrambled after four years of Trump. Some folks are living in denial, even after Trump blew up Esper. I've had people ask me all week, is it really as bad as it sounds? Yes, you should be concerned, deeply concerned. But I don't want us to take a beating as a country, as a people, as a person listening to this podcast, wherever you are. I want to help break through the noise and I want to make sure you understand what's really happening. It's on every single one of us to stay vigilant and now more than ever to stay frosty. Can't control your future, can't control your friends in a world without end. Stay frosty. Hey.
get really intense, when they get really crazy, when they get really hard, that is when it's most important to stay cool, to stay frosty. So we've got a guest to help you deal with the concern, to understand the threats, to guide us forward to a brighter future, a future that, no matter how dark it seems right now, he believes, and I believe, is still possible. And so our guest in this episode is one of the frostiest, one of the coolest leaders of our time. General Barry McCaffrey is one cool cat, and he's a true American hero. As we all pause to recognize Veterans Day and now Veterans Month, General Barry McCaffrey represents the best of what veterans are all about, the best of what leadership is all about, the best of what America is all about. General Barry McCaffrey served in the United States Army for 32 years. When he retired, he was the most decorated general serving in the United States Army, having been awarded three Purple Hearts for wounds received in combat, two Distinguished Service Crosses, the nation's second highest award for valor, and two Silver Stars for Valor. He served overseas for more than 12 years, and he did four combat tours with the 82nd Airborne Division, the Vietnamese Airborne Division, the 1st Cavalry Division, and the 24th Mechanized Infantry Division. And after leaving the military for five years, General McCaffrey served as the nation's drug czar, the director of the White House Office of National Drug Control Policy, ONDCP. Now, last year on this show, Ethan Nadelman was my guest. The legendary drug reform activist was called America's unofficial drug czar. Well, General Barry McCaffrey was the official drug czar. And now that you know that, his answer to the favorite drink question later in the show may not surprise you. He taught at West Point, his alma mater. He has a degree from Harvard. He was selected for the Doughboy Award, the highest honor the chief of infantry can bestow upon any infantryman. He was inducted into the Ranger Hall of Fame. In 1992, he was awarded the State Department's Superior Honor Award for the Principal Negotiation Team for the START Nuke Arms Control Treaty. He commanded 26,000 soldiers in the Army's 24th Infantry Division Combat Team during Desert Storm. And he received the NAACP Roy Wilkins Renowned Service Award and is a lifetime member of the NAACP. General McCaffrey's lived an incredible life. And when you download his resume from his website, it's 16 pages long. No shit, 16 pages. And it's not overkill. It's appropriate. General McCaffrey's been married to his incredible wife, Jill Ann, for 55 years. And he'll tell you a story about the day they were married. They have three married adult children and six grandchildren. And their son, Colonel Sean McCaffrey, just retired from the armed forces after his third combat tour. General McCaffrey now is the president of his own consulting firm, but you probably know him as a national security and terrorism analyst for NBC News. You know him from TV. You know him from the media. General McCaffrey has appeared in over 8,000 television stories and over 15,000 newspaper articles. You trust him, and you should, because he knows his shit, and he keeps his cool. Malcolm Nance and Molly McHugh sounded the alarm. And the alarm is ringing louder than ever. And General Barry McCaffrey is ringing it now, too. 
because you read what they're writing and saying to each other. Mm-hmm. And then you have a pretty good assumption that that's what they'll actually do, what they're talking to each other. What Mr. Trump is doing, you know, we had Mr. Pompeo, West Pointer, Harvard Law School graduate, say, we're going to be trans- having a change of power, all right, the second term for Mr. Trump. But when he started putting loyalists into the Department of Defense, we only got three coercive institutions, Homeland Security, Department of Justice, and Department of Defense. Department of Defense, a lot of Americans don't know this, the uniformed military have no authority to give orders to the nine joint combatant commanders. It's two civilians, the President of the United States and the Secretary of Defense. The general is no bullshit, and this is not a time for bullshit. It's a time for hard truths, and it's a time for hard leaders who can deliver, understand, communicate, plan for, and overcome hard truths. If you want sunshine, this is not your podcast. But if you want truth, this is your place, now and always. General McCaffrey is a serious man for these serious times. And this is a must-listen, serious Angry Americans episode that will wake you up, focus your heart, and prepare you for the precarious days ahead. If you're not angry, you're not paying attention, especially now. But especially now, we have to control that anger. We have to channel it. We have to recognize it in others. We have to control it. And all across this country, together, we have to cool it down. Yeah, we got to cool it now. Even if others won't, America has got to cool it now. We have to keep our cool heads, especially when the president of the United States is losing his. He may not embody and respect the four eyes, but General McCaffrey does. He's chock full of integrity, information, inspiration, and impact. And he's one of the most independent voices you'll ever hear. Welcome to a conversation that will help you stay calm. Welcome to a conversation that will help you stay cool. Welcome to a conversation that will help you stay vigilant. And welcome to a conversation that'll help you stay frosty. Because the old idiom is true. Cooler heads will prevail. And if we stay cool, we will prevail. So take a deep breath, America. I got you. Welcome to Angry Americans, episode 85. Ladies and gentlemen, angry Americans around the country and around the world, these are exceptionally precarious, trying, tumultuous times. We've covered it for more than a year and a half, and I am very, very humbled and privileged and grateful to bring to you a guest that's someone that I admire tremendously, 
uh, has been a real role model for me and, and so many others in this country. I think one of the finest leaders uh, that we have in the public space and a guy that's always a, a voice of sanity, a conscience, uh, and an incredibly inspiring uh, and important American. I'm very, very grateful, especially during Veterans Month, to have the great and powerful General Barry McCaffrey joins us here on Angry Americans. Welcome, sir. Well, good to be with you, Paul. And let me, if I may, begin by thanking you for your leadership and protecting the combat veterans of the war on terror, the millions of them that went out there and fought. And as I remind civilian audiences all the time, with 60,000 killed and wounded, So I'm personally grateful that like Jan Scruggs for the Vietnam War, that you stepped forward and tried to uh, provide supportive leadership to the people you served with. Well, I I appreciate that, sir. I've I've been following your lead and and so many others that came before me. And uh, you guys have taught us that it's it's one team, one fight. And probably now more than ever, uh, I, I wish you a happy Veterans Day, a happy Veterans Month. But it's also... I think the most uh, volatile Veterans Day I've seen in in my lifetime. Uh, I want to get into that with you. I want to talk about uh, the change uh, at the the Defense Department with Secretary Esper being fired. I want to talk about uh, the president and the election and all of it. Um, But I also know you're going to be a great voice of of calm for people, of stability, of strength. Um, But you come with a very... uh, uh, deep and interesting background. Anybody who's watching can see the room behind you that's filled with history and and, and interesting stuff. Um, But one of the questions we ask of all our guests, especially in times like this when folks need a break from time to time, is what is your drink of choice when you're not on MSNBC, when you're not teaching, when you're not inspiring? Do you have an adult beverage or cocktail of choice that that is your preferred one, sir? I'm not sure it's very adult. Uh, It starts with Baskin Robbins. And pulling in for a vanilla milkshake, which my spouse of 55 years strictly rations me to. So sign me up for Baskin Robbins wherever they are. I love it. And it's always a vanilla milkshake. Is that always the one you go for? That's it. No need to try anything else when you've got perfection. Excellent. Do you go extra thick or do you ever throw any malt in there? Or is it always just straight Baskin Robbins, vanilla milkshake? Just straight up, straight up. That's the only way to go. Excellent. Excellent. There's a lot of, I think, uh, you know, alcohol sales are up, but I think ice cream sales are probably dwarfing even that. I've been eating more ice cream than ever. A lot of folks have been eating a lot of ice cream. Uh, They've been watching you at night, but anybody who's read up on your history, you've been a leader in the public space now for basically my entire lifetime. I feel like I grew up seeing you on the military stage and then transitioning into the media Um, But you are also an esteemed academic. You've got a great uh, resume of of academic achievement. But I understand, correct me if I'm wrong, you started out in Massachusetts. And when you were growing up, General Barry McCaffrey, what was your first car? It was an unbelievable car. It's probably the best car I ever had. It was a Pontiac Le Mans with bucket seats and four on the floor. Blue. I, it was, I think it was $2,200, which was a frightful amount of money. Uh, and my dad advanced me a loan to get it. So when I graduated <clears throat> and got married to my wife for 55 years, that's what we drove away in was a Pontiac Le Mans. Wow. What year was it, sir? Do you remember? 1964. Well, I, actually, maybe it was 63 because we got them 
our first class senior year at West Point halfway through the year. And I, I, I've never seen, uh, had a feeling of such pride and ownership on any car since then. That's a beautiful car. What, what kind of blue was it? What shade of blue was that, was that year of Lamont? Well, it was a, sort of a dark blue, and uh, they were just beautiful cars, very classic. And I, to this day, I sort of regret when we got rid of that. We went mundane for the next uh, 50 years. Did you get married at the, at the Cadet Chapel at West Point? We didn't. Uh, we got married in California. My wife was out there. So this 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 uh, this this movie scene type situation of you were you in uniform when you got married? Civilian clothes. Civilian clothes. Getting into Le Mans, driving off into the California sunset for a life of adventure together. Yeah, my wife's family uh, were Army. Uh, her dad was class of forty two out of West Point, and he was in uh, some defense industry job in Southern California. Uh, Corona Del Mar, beautiful. To this day, I love Southern California, San Diego, um, on up. And uh, so that's 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 where her family was. We we still love the state. Amazing. So an, another question I've been asking all of our guests since the pandemic started, sir. Uh, for folks who are listening around the country, around the world, where are you, and how are you? How are you and your wife and the people close to you uh, dealing with this pandemic? Well, we, we moved out to Seattle. Uh, I kept two residences in, in Northern Virginia and Seattle for several years, and now um, primarily we're in Seattle. We have a house in Yakima, Washington, the center of the fruit basket of America, and uh, our primary residence is in Seattle. All three of our kids are out here. Uh, they all, uh, all their families are, are here. Uh, we see them more now than we probably did pre-COVID because there's dog wrestling and popcorn eating and socially distanced in the backyard. And I put a big COVID tent up on the entrance of the garage so we can, uh, with heaters. Uh, so we're actually doing okay, uh, but, but I haven't been on an airplane since in January. I used to fly four days a week or more. And uh, a lot of Zoom, a lot of uh, blue jeans, a lot of uh, Microsoft team and, uh, and staying in, in contact. So, you know, no more baseball, football. This uh, Seattle is an incredible city for restaurants and entertainment and sports. And mostly that's all gone now. Uh, hopefully by next summer, the end of next summer, it'll be back. But that's where we are. We're doing, doing well. We, we talked to uh, Flo Groberg in Seattle in the early days of the pandemic. And then we talked to Kristen Rowe Finkmeyer. I think it was Mother's Day uh, in, in May in, in Seattle. Um, and it feels like Seattle was the first place hit. If this, you know, COVID war, it was unfolding across the country. And, and I've used that framework of, of war. And I know the president's used it, others have. But, you know, I really feel like it's come in waves and we've needed a mobilization and a strategy in many of the, the same ways I believe we do when battling a, an existential threat like COVID. I, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that. But can you give us, as a military leader, uh, and I'm going to ask you to, of course, step back and look at the broader uh, landscape in the battle space, but can you talk about what Seattle has done well and what Seattle has done poorly and what can be learned about Seattle in particular and, and Washington more broadly? Yeah. Well, Washington State, uh, Governor Inslee's 
a very sensible fellow, a lot of integrity, organizational abilities, the state and national guards pitched in, uh, the health authorities are competent. uh, Seattle itself is a citadel of medical research and medical care. Just astonishing. Uh, World-class. University of Washington School of Medicine uh, does a ton, billion-dollar research industry. So uh, the capacity has been pretty impressive. They got organized. Uh, They mostly have kept it under control. Uh, Part of our problem was COVID, you know, and by the way, Seattle, for those, you know, your viewers who haven't seen it, is one of the most beautiful cities, bar none, in America. But it is closed down. It is eerie. Uh, Amazon and Boeing and Microsoft and uh, Expedia and all these great companies have by and large gone to distance involvement. So the ancillary businesses are dying all over the city. I third of them, half of them will never come back. And it's a sad thing to see. That's compounded, by the way, and this now we're into deep waters, but compounded by uh, uh, what I have termed uh, Seattle City has high integrity government. They don't steal a dime. They're educated, attractive, well-dressed people. Uh, well-meaning, but it's a goofy city leadership. The city council uh, has not sustained law enforcement. Uh, This is not Black Lives Matter. This is a couple of 300 uh, organized criminals who have threatened the existence of the downtown businesses. And that's another problem. Um, I feel a great sense of sympathy for the Seattle police. Um, I think a lot of them are quitting physically and walking away from the job, and others feel they have zero support uh, from city government. So we've got a problem out here. It's still a great city, great people, tremendous intellectual energy, business energy, uh, but it's in trouble. Hmm. They're lucky to have you there. We're lucky to have you here. Uh, I I love Seattle. I, I'm I'm so glad you talked about it. It's one of my favorite cities in the world. It, it's got uh, you're you're right about the restaurants and the landscape. I my favorite museum in America was the Experience Music Project right next to the the Needle. That was mm-hmm. such a special place. And the Sci-Fi Museum is downstairs. But I remember the first time I went to Seattle. I think it was on my book tour. And folks told me it was one of, if not the the most educated city in America. They bought more books than anywhere else on my book tour. And I always remember that. It stuck with me. And I think that it, it's a place that, uh, you know, is a reflection of so many things that are going right and, and going poorly in this country. But taking that bigger step back, you've been so important, I think, in, in sounding the alarm. And you're careful about sounding the alarm. But can you frame up for us on, on the biggest macro level possible, this moment in history for our country? Where are we? Uh, what what are we facing and what do you see on the landscape that you think people need to understand? Well, boy, that's a profound question. I, look, I think if you step back from it, you know, I've spent a lot of time overseas, uh, Europe, the Far East, you name it. And the one thing the international community has always given us uh, as a matter of respect, there are two things I used to tell, tell that in NATO uh, they would agree to. One is we're great organizers. 
Hmm. Yeah, we can organize anything. I mean, World War II, we went from a rural, introverted society to global domination in the space of three, three years. Uh, and the second thing is the international community would always say, we can trust these people. They're not as well-educated as our German and French and Italian and Brit compadres, and they got enormous wealth, but, but when they tell you they'll do something, they'll do it. And I think both of those are in doubt now. I'm just astonished at our inability to address big problems, but problems that aren't all that complex, protecting the border and yet treating the vital economic contributions of the immigrant Central American Mexican population with dignity and figuring out some way to let them cross the border and send their money home legally and be protected by OSHA and minimum wage. And uh, we can't organize anything at a national level. Business, fortunately, still works real good. Uh, and then I think the other thing is, uh, our, one of our challenges is people don't trust us anymore in the international community. And inside the country, uh, I think Mr. Trump is found fissures that were there, cultural, political, economic, uh, some of them real. Occasionally, he comes up with good ideas, strong military, protect our borders, protect American manufacturing, but he can't get anything done. He's got no character. Mm -hmm. So I actually think, you know, the country is sound. Uh, 325 million hardworking people uh, in your day-to-day -day life in this country, you don't run into people that almost ever that you don't respect. They tell you they're going to do something, you can trust their word. I think we're in trouble. So I think what I welcome, you know, I know um, Mr. Biden fairly well, uh, and he's a civil, decent, family-oriented guy with enormous experience. All he's got to do is step in and start acting in accordance with American values. And I think we're going to be far better off. Mm. I, I, I always appreciate your candor. You're, you're a no bullshit guy, um, but you always can see, you know, the, the road ahead and see what's up on, 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 on in the future. And I think folks need to hear that right now because it feels stressful. It feels chaotic. You know, a, a lot of folks celebrated the election and, and maybe had, you know, 24 hours to enjoy a result. And then reality comes back in that we're still facing some huge challenges as a country. Um, I hope that Mr. Biden is reaching out to you on a regular basis and, and seeking your counsel or at least watching you uh, on television. But can you break down your thoughts on the election? What did it show us about our country? What uh, opportunities and challenges uh, does it present? Well... Boy, I tell you, you know, I always, the most prized asset in military leaders is objectivity. Hmm. I mean, what you're hoping for is somebody that looks at the situation, looks at the facts, and makes some common sense decision. And, uh, and, and that, has been, uh, that has been lacking. I think the biggest fear I have is that the country is so divided, so angry. I, it's hard for me to understand how anyone could support Mr. Trump because of his fundamental lack of integrity and character. 
He's a bully. He's impulsive. He's ignorant. Uh, <laughs> he's a, he acts in a racist manner. Whether he's a racist is another thing. Uh, he, you know, he uh, can't be trusted with his own team. I mean, I can't imagine a worse leadership environment than working for this guy. So it's it just been appalling. And, but 70 million Americans looked at this situation and said, for one reason or another, we're voting for this guy. I think part of the challenge to Mr. Biden, never mind the Democratic Party, which is in disarray, Republican Party's gone. Now Trump is cold. They better listen to why do blue collar workers and, you know, those derogatory term, those that are college education, why are they voting for Trump? And even worse, in my impression, why did the majority of white folk vote for Mr. Trump? Uh, we are a multiracial society. Uh, that's good, not bad. Uh, and, but I don't want to see us get divided where race and ethnicity uh, are the, or for that matter, or political affiliation. I actually don't have any predisposition to the Republican Party or the Democratic Party. I've never uh, signed up for either one, trying to remain objective. But here we are in one hell of a mess, similar to 1860. Hmm. And now we better find a way to come together and start common sense decision making and listen to each other. Sir, can you talk about 1860? Talk, can you build on that? Can you explain to us what you see as the parallels here? Well, I think the parallel is, uh, you know, some of the, uh, the polling data is just unnerving. It's chilling. Uh, I, you know, I read, try and read uh, four newspapers every day. And uh, the little, little insights you get from good reporting are just amazing. The Trump supporter says, as far as he's concerned, if Trump wanted to be in, stay in office for 50 years and hand it to his children in turn, that would be okay. Hmm. Wow. You know, I, I've been sort of talking about Mr. Trump being a unfunny Mussolini, hmm. and, but that's bordering into uh, mass cult dangerous political behavior. So, you know, again, I think there's some things to be concerned about. I've got friends who I trust and value. They're educated people. And they'll, <clears throat> it's like an alternative universe talking about why to support Trump. So again, in comes Mr. Biden, this terribly sharp uh, Kamala Harris, and they better reach out and listen to these people. One of the worst things I saw in politics was during the primaries when Beto O'Rourke uh, who's got a pretty face and a lot of energy and very verbal guy uh, stood there and there was some kind of interview going on. And he's, and he's, some reporter asked him a provocative question. And he said, where's the effect? You bet your life. We're coming to get your guns. Right. Oh my God. Right. right. First of all, he's not going to, we're not taking guns away from Americans. We're not going to be Australia or the UK. Uh, baked into our DNA, but this is a kind of opening salvo that further cements anger and divisiveness. Instead of saying, well, guns is an issue, we got a terrible murder rate compared to most civilized countries, 
So we need things like, you know, uh, ID check uh, for criminal behavior and a part of everybody buys a gun for any reason. And we need to modify our rules. So we try and get the semi-automatic or automatic bump stock weapons. So there's a lot of things you can do, but you don't start off by saying we're going to take the guns away from hunters in Texas. You're just asking for a severe confrontation. Hmm. So, uh, so, sir, I want to I build on that uh, in, in a way that I think you're in a unique position to do. Um, I have said that there are some parallels that I see right now, and I know it may feel like an extreme example, to what happened in Iraq after Saddam went down. And there was an, a, a structure and a system that was empowered and supportive of Trump, of, of, of Saddam, and the things that were around him. And then we came in and famously debathified the country. When I was there, Bremer and others you know, essentially fired uh, thousands of angry, loyal people with guns and didn't give them an alternative in the future. And those people became the foundation of the insurgency that I and so many others had to fight and still you know, sprawls today. I feel like Biden needs to be very clear in presenting an alternative and, and a part of the future to exactly those people you're talking about that are sparked by Beto O'Rourke, the people who feel like maybe the Democrats are coming for their guns and maybe they feel like uh, like socialism is coming and they're scared and they're angry and they're organized uh, and they want to be a part of the future. And I've said you can't you know, all the Trump supporters aren't just going to go away any more than you can kill away all the terrorists. And, I, and they're different. I know that. But I think we saw an example of if you don't give people an alternative, it will result in very bad domestic national security issues. And that's what one of the many things I'm concerned about right now is the small violence, the angry folks that feel like they don't have a part in this future. Can you can you talk about what you see in relation to that? What can Biden do and say specifically to Trump supporters? And, and where do you see that on the priority list as we look at a very tumultuous two months of a lame duck and likely a volatile couple of months in, in the early part of next year? Yeah. Well, by the way, I couldn't agree with you more about the, the history lesson out of Iraq. That was just astonishing, basic, fundamental lack of uh, judgment. And... Uh, and it it ended up with thousands of U.S. soldiers getting killed, Marines getting killed and wounded because uh, Mr. Bremer and, and Rumsfeld, oh, my God, what a terrible man. Uh, what an arrogant person, incapable of listening to other viewpoints uh, with a group of advisors around them that were, uh, again, high IQ and no judgment. The, you know, the old, the old saying, they knew the price of everything, but the value of nothing. Mm. And uh, so we ended up in this mess, and you you can't take apart the institutions of a society. My dad used to fought in Italy in World War II, wonderful soldier, and he fought in Korea and Vietnam. And but in Italy, he said you know, the last days of the war is division. The ninety famous ninety second infantry division, African American, pulls up into Milan, and he said the uh, the the locals had risen up. And they locked up all the Milan police officers. And so for three days, they were settling scores all over the city, murdering people. And finally, he said his division commander said, let the cops out, tell them to get back on the beat. So you, you simply can't evaporate the, the structure of a society and not expect that the bad guys will come out on top. Uh, I think 
we got a worse problem than violence. Uh, the election, to my delight and against the, my fears, was largely peaceful all over America. You know, some of these Trump convoys were a little troublesome, but basically, um, yeah, there were a couple of uh, jurisdictions where a local judge said you can publicly carry semi-automatic weapons uh, in the vicinity of polling places. But by and large, it was a peaceful election. I suspect that will continue. If there are outbreaks of violence, for sure the U.S. armed forces aren't going to be involved in it. Uh, but our police forces at municipal and county and state level are extremely effective. So I don't think the violence in any way imperils democracy going forward. What I fear is total warfare, gridlock. Uh, I think the Republicans are going to end up uh, owning the Senate for another uh, couple of years. And uh, it, will Mitch McConnell, will people like Rob Portman, who I've had tremendous respect for, are they going to say, well, we got a country to govern. Uh, we got to work with these people. Uh, and Biden's a conciliator. He's a mediator. He's a guy that knows how to work toward compromise. Can they end the chaos inside the beltway in Washington, D.C.? The jury's out. And then finally, I think we're seeing, uh, you know, a mixed bag in the, at state level. Uh, Governor Mike DeWine, somebody I've worked with in the past, a magnificent public servant. Uh, he's, a, he's a model, along with other governors, of common sense governance. And we got to reach out to these people and, and listen to them. Because right now, I, a lot of the Trump supporters I talk to, um, you know, they're educated, good people. But, God, they just they think the election was stolen. They're convinced the whole thing was a fraud. Uh, one of my friends is a CIA, former CIA station chief. She's used to looking objectively for evidence at foreign countries and figuring out what's going on. And yet she's, uh, she's convinced that 80% of the Republicans think the, uh, the, the, it was a fraudulent election. How can you, how can, if you lack legitimacy in your democratic uh, process, how can you govern? So we have some work to do. And I need to see Republican uh, senators and congressmen step forward. And, you know, what's a, what's so bad about getting run out of office if that's what it takes to make a statement for America's future? I'm, I'm glad you talked about the political division in such a focused way, because we've talked a lot on this show about how so many Americans are hungry for alternatives. 40% of the country is unaffiliated, independent. I'm independent. You're independent. Many folks who voted and had a huge impact on this election in places like Arizona and Pennsylvania are independent. And the parties seem to be going in, in opposite directions. I got into a Twitter discussion with AOC this weekend. And at the same time, I'm, I'm criticizing the Trump administration. And, and I'm in this space that I know you're in. And John McCain was in and Joe Biden's been in. But the middle feels lost right now. There is no legitimate independent party. You know, independent candidates, for the most part, have been uh, a joke or haven't really caught on, except maybe going back to Ross Perot. Where do you see the opportunity politically for alternatives or for breaking? If, if the Republicans won't move and they're going to stay calcified and the Democrats uh, are maybe going to be torn in two between moderates 
and, and left wingers, but, but will still be viewed by many as too far left. Is there a space in the middle for, for guys like you and me? Uh, or if not, what, what do we need to do as Americans to create it? You know, that, that AOC uh, is a fascinating to me. Uh, by sort of, sort of start, I mean, this is one of the most talented politicians that has emerged in America in the last 25 years. Absolutely. And I was thrilled when she got elected because, the, as you remember, the number three Democrat in the House uh, who had represented that district didn't have a home there. His kids weren't going to school there. He wasn't even gone by. He was, uh, you know, living in D.C. and playing power politics. So AOC emerges from her bartender job with her flashing good looks and her high IQ and knocks him out of the saddle. I felt good about that. That's how democracy is supposed to work. And if I'd lived in her district, I would have voted for her, too. Having said that, (laughs) there's almost nothing she's talking about that will work in America. And so I think you know, 75% of Americans are not signing up for much of what she says. And that's also a problem, you know. So when you look at the, the American people as a whole, and you say, what are the issues that concern them? And it always starts with jobs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it goes to their kids and school. And they, they talk about they're worried about health care, uh, which is unaffordable and disorganized in America. And they, and they actually are worried about their security, too. They want a black mother living in a central city wants a decent law enforcement establishment protecting them. She's getting on the bus every morning, going to act as a, to her nursing job. So the American people aren't screwed up. The political party leadership is. Now, another thing, I'm a 77 years old, in great health. My mother lived to 100. My dad in the late 90s. But having said that, I want to see younger people in political leadership positions. This is nonsense. Candidates for the presidency of the United States ought to be age 60 or under. Now, I get accused of ageism, which is probably a federal crime now for saying that. We need to move a new generation in there. Nancy Pelosi, I know. She's an elegant woman, educated. she shouldn't be the Speaker of the House, for God's sakes. I think she's 80. You know, <laughs> what's going on? Why can't Seth Moulton from Massachusetts, uh, with his, what, two or three combat tours of the Marine, why can't he be the Speaker of the House? It's time to, you know, oh, senior people ought to know when it's time to let go and let another generation get in there. We need to, and if we can't do that, then we need a new party. New parties don't have a good record in this country, though, as you've already pointed out. They normally last one election and then fall apart. And they they put some charismatic person with no judgment in as their candidate. So, but I think we're on the verge of a, a third party if, if the, the political leadership can't pull themselves together. Some of these Republicans, Cruz, uh, Marco Rubio with his pretty face and all these guys, they're terrible. Terrible people, no integrity. How did they get up in public office? So we need to we need to start registering people to vote, and we ought to start with the eighteen year olds and work our way up. 
I appreciate that. I think you're going to have a, a lot of support from a lot more young people after this, after this conversation. You, you are candid in all that you do. Um, we've talked a lot on this show about issues that have people righteously angry. Uh, President Obama actually talked about this, 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 uh, this message that we've had uh, over the last year and a half on this show, specifically in the last couple of weeks. But, you know, we say if, if you're not angry, you're not paying attention. There are things to be, everybody's a little angry, what they do with it and how they react with it differs. But General Barry McCaffrey, you're a master of cool. You, you always stay calm under pressure. You've been shot at more times than probably anybody I know. But even you get angry. So General Barry McCaffrey, what makes you angry? Um, oppression, uh, lack of integrity. Uh, politicians uh, who know better, who are smart people, who are saying things that are patently wrong uh, to remain in power. Uh, you know, I, sp I spent a lot of time in and out of D.C., and one of the older mentors to me, when I, I, was, I was a strategic planner for the Joint Staff, and he said, you know, a lot of people in this town uh, actually don't care about outcomes. They're grading each other on style and on one-upsmanship and uh, who is the dominant voice in the room, but they actually don't, and they stay here forever. Uh, and, <laughs> and that makes me angry. Hmm. Uh, and by the way, I say that as somebody that there's little pockets in, in Washington uh, of people who are dreadfully serious about what they do and aren't doing that. The CIA. The armed forces leadership, uh, normally not in this administration, the National Security Council has these phenomenally capable, experienced people. Uh, so there's pockets of people around town who are always able to work the interagency process. By the way, the foreign, the most carefully selected people in our government are foreign service officers now being decimated by uh, Mr. Pompeo. Uh, so I, I think the thing that makes me angry is, you know, you don't see that in business, for God's sakes. If you went and randomly selected an Army infantry battalion and went in there and say, hey, how's this place operate, Command Sergeant Major? And you looked at the leadership and what they're up to, mostly they're straightforward, high integrity, courage. That's what I normally find in business. Our problem is our political leadership has been lousy and getting worse for 20 years. And that political leadership, I think, has gotten even worse in the last couple of weeks. You've been outspoken about the developments at the Pentagon. I have been, other folks have been. I feel like America sort of woke up for a second, but they're still not paying attention enough. And I don't think most folks understand enough the severity of what I see happening at the Pentagon, and you've been talking about in the last couple of days in the media. But I want, I want to give you space to talk about this. The president has fired uh, Secretary of Defense Esper. Now more and more folks are leaving from senior leadership. I think it's maybe the most precarious time I've seen at the Pentagon in, in, in recent memory. Can you talk about, you said on TV, you're alarmed, and you don't get alarmed very often. Can you talk about what you see and, and why you're alarmed? Yeah. First of all, you got to start with, is there any reason to believe that Mr. Biden didn't win the election uh, to be the next president? The answer is no. He's going to be the next president. Uh, 
I, I, so I've set that aside. It's just a given. So between now and 20 January at noon, what's going to happen? And, you know, we've always had people like me are fundamentally optimists about the American people and American institutions. You know, it always works out. We had the Gore-Bush election. I got it. But basically, both of them are good, law-abiding, experienced people. This is different. Uh, poor Mr. Trump uh, is flailing about. He's emotionally fragile. Uh, he has no sense of the rule of law or respect for the Constitution. I doubt he's ever read a copy of it, never mind had a class on it. And I think uh, he is capable of trying anything. And so, you know, when we, uh, everybody's saying, no, give him space. He's just trying to come to grips with it. Oh, no, no, I don't think so. Uh, when you, if, if you're watching an enemy adversary state, uh, what you do is you read what they're writing and saying to each other. Mm-hmm. And then you have a pretty good assumption that that's what they'll actually do, what they're talking to each other. What Mr. Trump is doing, you know, we had Mr. Pompeo, West Pointer, Harvard Law School graduate, say, we're going to be trans, tra- having a change of power, all right, the second term for Mr. Trump. But when he started putting loyalists into the Department of Defense, we only got three coercive institutions, Homeland Security, Department of Justice, and Department of Defense. Department of Defense a lot of Americans don't know this, the uniformed military have no authority to give orders to the nine joint combatant commanders. It's two civilians, the President of the United States and the Secretary of Defense. Mark Esper was actually extremely well qualified and knowledgeable to be the Secretary of Defense. His problem was the President of the United States, and he had to walk a line there, which he's going to be maligned by history. But at the end of the day, he's just an honorable capable guy. And they fired him and stuck this Chris Miller in there. Chris has a good reputation as a combat leader. He's probably a good guy. He's completely unqualified to be the Secretary of Defense. Then they've got four marginal characters moving in with him. I mean, this retired one-star, Tata, I guess you pronounce his name, is a dangerous guy. He's a little firebrand. He's, he has no, no judgment. And say, why would anybody, by the way, accept a job in government for 90 days? So my conclusion is some of the nutcakes over in the White House talking to the president are laying the groundwork for him to declare the election was invalid and he's not leaving office. Nobody says, oh, come on, come on, don't be an alarmist. Oh, we ought to, you ought to believe your own eyes. And uh, I think this is this is really worth uh, being concerned about. The only uh, bar on these guys' behavior, you know, if they call in Mark Milley, who's a terrific uh, leader, I've known him since he was a colonel. He's courageous. He's a big Princeton athlete. He's smart as a whip. He's really a tough guy. But if he gets a legal order from acting Secretary of Defense, who's probably, by the way, illegally appointed, uh, the Deputy Secretary of Defense, I don't see how you bypass him under the current law. But if he gets a legal order, I think what he'll do is pick up the phone and he'll call both parties in Congress and tell them, here's what I've been instructed to do. 
but basically the armed forces will follow legal orders. This is not a normal situation. We ought to be concerned about what's going on. So you mentioned uh, Tata or Tata, who called uh, President Obama a terrorist and a Manchurian candidate. He's been Islamophobic and I think dangerous in many respects. Um, you mentioned General Milley. We're all now on watch to see if if, if uh, Trump tries to fire General Milley, which I believe is within his power. He could do that, right? And probably get tremendous pushback. But frankly, you know, he hasn't gotten that much pushback on Esper, so he may try it. I feel like you've got a guy who's solidifying power, and he's starting in the most powerful place. If I were going to try to solidify power, I'd start with the Pentagon too. I'd start with the place with the guns and the power and the strength. Um, but beyond being alarmed, people have been asking me this, and I can't think of anybody else better than you. What should we do? What should we do right now? We see this. We're alarmed. What should average citizens do? I know you're going to talk to members of Congress, I hope, as well. But, but what should we do to respond to this? Uh, I've called him a political suicide bomber. Trump just blows up everything in his path. I've called him President Mayhem. President Mayhem is now attacking our Pentagon. What do we do about it, sir? Well, you know, not being facetious, one thing we do is pray, you know, because the elections happen. And so my guess is, by the way, uh, that at the end of the day, uh, Mr. Biden assumes office on the 20th and the chaotic environment in the center of our government stops. Uh, The other thing I tell you is there is zero possibility of the service chiefs, the senior leadership, uniform leadership of the armed forces. Uh, supporting a coup. That's never going to happen. You know, the armed forces are the boys and girls of America, and they're under military discipline. They swore an oath to the Constitution. There is zero chance of that. And by the way, uh, poor Mr. Trump, he's taken over the wrong institution. The ones to worry about are Homeland Security and Department of Justice. Some of the most wonderful people in government are in the FBI. They're inculcated with the law. They're investigators. They're not goons. Mm. Uh, But if they fire Chris Ray and put an acting in there, who uh, uh, then you've got a tool that might be useful in oppressing the outcome of an election. So I I actually don't think uh, Mr. Trump knows what he's doing. Uh, But what I do fear is a real confrontation. Uh, You know, uh, the chairman of the JCS has a four-year term. Uh, The Senate approved him, I think, unanimously. Uh, So the question is, would the Congress tolerate firing the chairman of the JCS? And if they did, can you appoint an acting chairman? Can he serve in office without Senate confirmation? The Constitution said you, as an empty lieutenant, had your commission approved by the Senate. You know, the big role of guys and gals went over there. But uh, so, but Mr. Trump's been ignoring that for a couple of years. He's just putting people in office. I think the most likely outcome is some really incredible instructions coming out of the sector, the acting Secretary of Defense, in the next ninety days. Not go seize ballot boxes, but um, impulsive orders to withdraw all forces from Afghanistan by Christmas Eve. Uh, 
you know, uh, border, uh, Mr. McGregor coming in. <laughs> he's a he's a bright guy. He's a defense intellectual. Doug McGregor who writes good books and you know thinks about issues. He's also an extremist. Uh, he was making comment they were considering to be the U.S. ambassador to Germany, and there was an uprising of people saying, "Wait, this guy is trying to excuse." German behavior in World War II, anti-Semitic kind of conversation. So he's going to be an advisor to the acting Secretary of Defense. Oh, my God. What is going on here? So those, those senators over there on the Hill better wake up. The history is going to make a harsh judgment of them if they allow this to go to an actual confrontation. Hmm. So... That is the breakdown I was hoping for from you. I want to ask you a really specific question. You say Mr. Trump. I notice you're very deliberate in saying Mr. Trump. Is there a reason you don't say President Trump? Well, normally, by the way, every president of the United States, and I've been alive and, you know, in uniform or in civil government, there isn't one of them, whether I voted for him or not, who I wouldn't publicly treat uh, with great respect because of the office of the, the land, because they get elected by the American people. Uh, you know, some of them weren't all that attractive. I, I used to literally worship President George H.W. Bush. Mm. You know, I thought, I don't know how good a politician he was, but he was uh, a model of how, of an American patrician and how to live your life. Mm. And so, but all of them, whether I liked them or not, I'd be very respectful. I'm not respectful of this guy at all. Uh, I think uh, I think he's been a disaster. I don't trust him. I think he uh, he's uh, uh, he's got bad judgment. I don't think he knows where Croatia is. I don't think he knows uh, <laughs> some of it's comical stuff. I mean, that all you got to know about Mr. Trump is the White House press conference where he's looking at. That poor uh, White House uh, opioid task force member, Dr. Burke, and he says, you know, we ought to introduce bleach. And <laughs> Are you kidding me? I mean, you couldn't have gotten a fourth grader to come up with that talk. So this is an angry, impulsive man. I'm not saying he doesn't have some decent principles of ideas, defend the borders and stuff like that, but he's a disaster. And the sooner we get him out of there, the sooner this country can start getting back on track. You tell it like it is, sir. And that's one of, one of the reasons why I think I have so much respect for you and the country has looked to you uh, in, in these times, especially. How many times over the last few decades when, when issues of, of military conflict or crisis are emerging and you look up on television and there's General Barry McCaffrey. And I think some of the conversations you've had with Brian Williams, especially, are really important for the country. I feel like they're a masterclass on, on leadership, but also on civility and on this country. You're, I, in my view, you're, you're one of the most important voices out there and, and a patriot. You're also a positive guy and, and you keep it positive and you inspire others. Uh, you have an amazing family around you and you live a really rich life. And in times like this, people uh, are looking for hope and, and inspiration. Um, so General McCaffrey, what makes you happy? Well, I, look, I wake up every morning grateful for starters that I'm not, you know, carrying a gun in a rifle platoon in Vietnam or Iraq or wherever. I've got hot showers and a, a loving family and 
<clears throat> by and large, you can trust the police and local government. And it's almost impossible, people don't understand this, to bribe a federal official. So mostly, I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but mostly our contracts and all that aren't like the rest of the world. This is really a decent place to live. And, and so it's, it's worth fighting for and sustaining. You know, I, normally I'm talking to a civilian group, like I love Rotary. So if I'm talking to a Rotary group, I'll start off with, look, you got to understand that this is the wealthiest society in human history. And I've got a series of slides to talk about our agricultural capability and our uh, development of pharmaceuticals and aviation. By the way, COVID throwed a lot, thrown a lot of this off track. But basically, we're an incredible society. And you know, I used to be amused. The, we have foreign officers here in our schooling system, all all the services. And we used to the first ones. I got the Russians into the Air War College at <laughs> at Montgomery, Alabama. Uh, some high IQ, shiny colonel. He came with his family. And at graduation, that son of a gun, uh, he always had his family in hiding. He walked across the stage, took his diploma, and disappeared into the crowd. So I had to call in the Russian military attache, this drunken, foolish idiot. And <laughs> I used to get a lot of laughs around. I'd say, I, I told the guy, I said, no, don't, don't be worried about this. You know, our guys would defect if they had a chance to. <laughs> so... Well, we lose tons of foreign officers and NCOs and they're in the United States. They disappear into the woodwork. My wife's grandfather had a giant farm in World War II with grain, and he had a dozen German POWs there. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the war, they all disappeared into American society. We have a remarkable country. It, the American people are hardworking, they're civil, uh, you know, they're, they're spiritual, although that's changing also. Uh, they are accepting a, a multiracial society. The armed forces, you can't walk in a room and not look up and see around the table, there's a woman and a black guy and a brown guy, and you look at their rank and you, you're sure they're qualified for the job they're in. So, you know, I think the country is in good shape. We just need to work on our political leadership. That's the message we need right now, I think. And I hope that that political leadership, I, I know you probably would be reluctant to do it. I hope it includes you. I hope they pull you inside for any number of critical jobs or at least as an advisor, um, because I think you really do understand what's happening and, and, and you bring a sense of calm. And I think we need that right now. We need calm and we need thoughtfulness. And we say on this show, stay vigilant and stay frosty. I feel like you are the embodiment of staying frosty, no matter what's happening in this country. So we are exceptionally grateful for you, uh, for all your, your leadership sacrifices throughout your life. And I think especially now, I mean, you've done some amazing things for this country, sir, but I think you may be needed right now and in the months to come more than any other point in your lifetime. So, so we are grateful for you. I would like to express that gratitude in the form of gifts. We cannot do that uh, in person as I would like to, um, but I'll do it virtually. And uh, the first thing I've got for you, if you, if you head out uh, into that amazing, I would love to see the bivouac you've created out there because nothing's better than an infantry guy 
you know, getting into a backyard. You should see what I've done to my garage. But anyway, I'm going to send you uh, an Angry Americans uh, T-shirt and some gear made by the veterans of Oscar Mike. It's also in- incredibly comfortable. Um, if you don't want to put it in your milkshake or you want to give it as a gift, I will send you some Uncle Nearest 1884 whiskey, small batch whiskey. They've been a great supporter of ours and an amazing story. And then the last gift, we've been doing this for all of our guests, but it's also kind of a Rorschach question for the show. Uh, the famous Easter candies, Peeps, come in, come in three colors, blue, yellow, and pink. General Barry McCaffrey, which color would you choose and why? There's absolutely no question. It's the blue. It's infantry blue. Uh, yesterday, I was wearing my infantry tie for the interviews, and that's where my heart and soul is. I used to tell people I wasn't trying to be famous. I was just trying to be famous at Fort Benning, Georgia. <laughs> well, you are now famous at Fort Benning, Georgia. We've said it before on this show. For folks that, that haven't heard it before, you know, we say it all the time. Why is the sky blue? Because God loves the infantry, right? And yeah. you, you, you represent uh, the finest of the infantry, sir. And you are now famous at Fort Benning. I promise you that. The schoolhouse that I went to and so many others went to, you are famous there and respected there. And uh, we have just so much gratitude for all that you do and all that you are. Please keep it up. Please, uh, folks need some orders nowadays, and, and they're not getting it from the president. So in your special way, if you can give us you know, some guidance and some orders every time you're on television and everything you do, we're standing by to follow your lead and, and to have your back. General Barry McCaffrey, thank you so much for being with us and for all you do. Paul, good being with you. Make sure you stay strong to take care of the Iraq-Afghanistan war veterans, which includes my son and a lot of my students. Yes, sir. Will do. I'll follow orders. <laughs> Thank you so much, sir, for joining us. Okay, good to be with hey, you. Frosty. In times like this, milkshakes for everybody. And thank yous for everybody, especially our guest, the great General Barry McCaffrey. He is such an inspiring, important, iconic American. Watch him on NBC. Definitely follow him on Twitter. And look for him at Baskin Robbins drinking a milkshake. And to keep everyone cool, thank yous and milkshakes for everybody, especially the Righteous Media team. They've been cranking so hard and always staying frosty, especially always frosty, mighty Mercy Rich. The exceptionally cool, creative Chris Rosenthal, and the blizzard of brilliance himself, the great Bill Schultz. And thanks to the cool folks at Uncle Nearest, Uncle Nearest Premium Whiskey, inspired by the best whiskey maker the world never knew, the first African-American master distiller, Nathan Nearest Green. You've heard about it on this show a lot. General Barry McCaffrey's getting some for his milkshakes. It's been called one of the top five whiskeys in the world. Check them out at UncleNearest.com. If you want to get started on your holiday gifts now, a bottle of Uncle Nearest makes an excellent gift. And apologies for this show being late, but part of why this show is late is because it's been such a packed week and a packed week of important press hits as well. I want to thank a couple of the folks who had me on to talk about the election, to talk about Veterans Day, to talk about the mayhem. I want to thank Brian Lair at WNYC NPR, a guy who I hope runs for mayor. He won't, but I hope he will. Maybe another candidate for mayor in New York, Allison Stewart, the great legendary Allison Stewart. Thank you for having me on her NPR show. Thanks to Zerlina Maxwell, who has a new show on Peacock. 
She had me on. And of course, the great Chris Cuomo had me on Let's Get After It on SiriusXM, POTUS Channel 124. Great to be back on the air with Chris Cuomo and Vicky. And I challenged Cuomo to push-up contest. So more on that to come. Thank you to Here and Now on NPR at a WBUR in Boston. One of the best shows in America. If you don't listen to Here and Now, check it out. They have consistently, for more than a decade, focused on veterans' issues, not just when it's Veterans' Day, but every day. My thanks to all of them. And they gave me a chance to talk about the new Vice series that is finally coming. I told you about it before. In the beginning, folks said we were being scaremongers, that maybe it was hyperbole. Well, it doesn't look like that now, right? Now, how much damage? Can Trump really do as a lame duck? Lots. And Righteous Media and I are proud to be a part of a powerful new series with Ephraim Films coming on November 16th on Vice TV. It used to be Viceland. It's directed by my great friend Anthony LaPay. It's got Malcolm Nance, Jay Johnson, Jeffrey Wright, and Jameel Smith. A lot of folks you've heard on this show are going to be a part of it. We are very, very proud to be involved. And if you thought Angry Americans was a fiery title, well, get a load of this. Here's a preview of While the Rest of Us Die, Secrets of America's Shadow Government. For over 70 years, our leaders have told us one thing under the bright lights. The protection of the lives and property of Americans is the responsibility of all public officials. To care, to try. And it is my first duty as president to protect the American people. We have it so well under control. But America's shadow government has spent trillions of dollars on secret plans that serve one premise. When the shit really hits the fan, we're on our own. I have nothing, nothing. For decades, the government has invested trillions of dollars in a secret plan to save itself. While the rest of us die. This is our reality, folks, so get ready. Check it out on Monday and every Monday to come for the next six weeks. And thank you to everyone who's already checked it out and spread the word. It's one of many projects to come from Righteous Media that will continue to bring the four eyes. And thanks to our vigilant Patreon members who are making it possible. Please join us. You can do it for just five bucks a month. You can support this show. You can make it possible. You can make other important projects possible. But you will be a part of the valued foundation of Angry Americans. That includes Dick Richard, who just joined us. Is that a real person? I don't know. If not, he's got a heck of a name. It's Dick Richard. So I want to thank Dick Richard, our Vigilant Patreon member. He joined the Vigilant. Again, we have three levels, the Vigilant, the Very Vigilant, the Most Vigilant. We will be doing some Zoom calls. We will be doing some virtual events. So check it out. The Vigilant's only five bucks a month, and you will help us support the show and keep it going. My thanks to all of you. And thank you to everybody who played guest to guest. A lot of you got this one. I posted a picture of Bill Clinton with some sunglasses on and he was looking at somebody and I said, guess the guest and a number of you got it. So these folks have some very cool, angry American stuff coming their way. Kilted CB got it right. Kilted CB, who is a Highlander, a Viking, an independent American. He guessed General Barry McCaffrey and he said he did Leo ops with the Coasties not long after this speech. He said, those are some fun times. And I will admit the Coastie guys were nuts. So this guy was around during that time. Guess who else correctly guessed the guest? Our friend Delfino down in Houston, Texas at Aldine Tree Services. 
Well done, Delfino. He said, could it be General Barry McCaffrey? I believe he served President Bill Clinton as the director of the Office of National Drug Control Policy. You are correct, Delfino. Other folks guessed William Cohen. Somebody else guessed Colin Powell. Somebody else said, oh, my God, you actually got Hillary. No, we did not. It was not Kamala Harris. It was Barry McCaffrey. Nate Holdstein also got it. Sharon Hula Moon 18 also got it. A lot of guesses for Al Gore, which was not correct. A lot of guesses for Hillary Clinton, not correct. Although both would be welcome to join me anytime. If you want to guess the guest every week, look for the hashtag guess the guest and follow us on our social media. It's always on our Twitter, on my Facebook, on our Instagram. You can guess the guest and win a very cool prize. So thanks to all of you who played guess the guest and thanks to you folks who've called in. We've been getting some great calls from some excellent callers from all across the country, like this very cool cat. Warren Jones, North Carolina. Got me angry because I don't see nothing happening in the Trump administration to help anybody but himself. The crimes must be exposed so all Americans have some reconciliation. Thank you. Enjoy your show. Tell Senator Hager when you talk to him. Thank you. Thank you, Ron Jones. I will tell Senator Hagel, and I feel you. I appreciate the call. I also appreciate this one. It's Grace from Buffalo, New York. Listen to the Malcolm Nance podcast, and that's what has me angry because I, too, am worried about violence after the election. Living in Erie County, Buffalo, New York, we don't normally have these issues, but we have some knuckleheads who have been threatening violence and people we know. And I'm very, very worried about that and not sure what to do about it other than to stay vigilant and stay frosty. Grace, I feel you. I am still worried about the violence. Stay vigilant. Stay frosty. Keep the peace. That's what you can do. But thank you for calling. And I always want to hear from you. If you're listening and you've never reached out, tweet, post on our social You can even call like Ron and Grace did. The number is 833-33-ANGRY. 833-33-ANGRY. Give us a call, and you know what'll happen. I'll make you famous. I will make you famous. Thank you to all of you who've reached out. Thank you most of all and always to my family, especially my wife and my two amazing boys. This week is my wife's birthday. Happy birthday, Lori. You are the coolest customer out there. You are a rock. You are amazing, and I'm so grateful for you. I know this has been a hard year for us. But I hope this year ahead will be the best one for you, for us, and for everyone. We love you. Happy birthday, Lori. And thank you for all that you do for all of us. I can never possibly thank you enough and repay you enough for all the support you give to me and the boys and everyone around us. We love you so much. Happy birthday. And thanks to everyone who continues to retweet, subscribe, and support this show. Keep the feedback coming on social media. Our numbers continue to grow. Our YouTube page continues to grow. Remember, you can watch a video of every single episode over on YouTube. So if you got some friends who aren't into podcasting, maybe they want to watch the show. But I see you. I hear you. I'm with you. You can go to angryamericans.us. You can get the newsletter. You can check out our merch. We got lots of merch. You can get started for the holidays now. Get somebody a Thanksgiving gift. Get them their Christmas, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, whatever. But go to angryamericans.us. Support the show. Buy a shirt. Get some merch. And spread the word. Seriously. Do it. Do it. Do it. 
definitely check out the videos. We've got some really cool videos that Chris puts together, one-minute clips that you can share about this show and about issues. We're continuing to push the envelope and content here at Righteous Media. We will adapt, improvise, and overcome. So stay tuned, subscribe for free, and share. It's absolutely free. We'll keep this movement growing week by week by week. The election's over, but the work is not. And there is plenty of reason to be angry. But there's a way to turn it, a way to channel it, a way to harness it. There's always a way to make an impact. And now more than ever, especially after the election, you can turn that anger into positive impact. Now more than ever, you can be a helper. Always look for the helpers. There will always be helpers, you know, even just on the sidelines. Because if you look for the helpers, you'll know that there's hope. Every episode, I offer a way to convert your righteous, understandable anger into positive action. A positive action that shows that angry Americans can be impactful Americans. An action that will channel your energy, make you feel good, and make a difference. And like this show and everything we do at Righteous Media, our actions are packed with the four eyes: Integrity, information, inspiration, and impact. And we all need some inspiration to stay frosty. And Chris Stapleton is one of the most inspiring artists in the world. I've talked about him before on this show, and he's got a new album that just dropped. And we need it now more than ever. And this song is called Starting Over. This was the most volatile Veterans Day in our lifetime. But veterans are hardwired to be leaders, to be helpers. We represent the leadership, patriotism, and hope that we need in America now more than ever. When you look for the helpers, look for the veterans. They're good at starting over. Some struggle with it, but overall, that's a pretty good at it. It's like Norman Lear said when he was on this show, over and next. Starting over. Veterans Day and Veterans Month is a time to hear our stories, but to learn our lessons and to join our fights. And I've had the humbling honor of working for and alongside the best of them. But this time, this month, this year, I hope that all Americans can unite around one thing, a recognition that Veterans Day was initially called Armistice Day. It commemorated the end of World War I. It was a time when the guns stopped when people stop fighting. And Veterans Day can be a time for us to all stand together and reflect and recognize that veterans are not a charity, we're an investment, but an investment that America needs always, and especially right now. I say it every year. I hope we can make every day Veterans Day, but especially now. That doesn't mean mattress sales or empty words from politicians. It means living and defending the values that all of us who wore the uniform stood up to preserve and defend, especially right now. So step up and support the veterans groups that are on the front lines as we continue to see them pounded by COVID. On the eve of Veterans Day, the VA hit its ninth consecutive day of record high COVID cases, up 54% in just two weeks. And inpatients, Dealing with COVID complications have doubled since October 6th. 
and the Department of Veterans Affairs Secretary Wilkie himself was quarantining after being exposed to Ben Carson. But despite that, the next day, he and the president showed up late to Arlington Cemetery and couldn't even bother to wear a mask. So every time you read a Veterans Day story about an amazing veteran, remember that tens of thousands of them are sick and dying of COVID right now. Many who stormed the beaches at Normandy and fought the Nazis. You want to support them? Help them not die. Wear a damn mask, even if our president won't. And the new annual VA suicide report came out this week and showed another kind of pandemic, a mental health pandemic that continues to take the lives of our sons and daughters, our brothers, our sisters, our neighbors, our friends. So get informed and get involved, but even more so, honor our vets by honoring what they stood for. Defend our values. And there's a very big Veterans Day idea that cuts to the core of our values that I hope everyone will consider. It's an idea that's catching on. Norman Lear has supported it. I understand President Obama supported it this week. But think about combining Veterans Day with Election Day. It would finally make Election Day a national holiday. It would be the ultimate way to improve both Election Day and Veterans Day and salute our veterans. Think about it. Veterans Day means little to most Americans beyond a day off from work sometimes. It's a federal holiday, the first federal holiday after Election Day. Yet attendance and support at Veterans Day events is low and declining. And so is the veterans' population. Over the next generation, the population of veterans in America will go from 21 million to 10 million. The sad reality is that all veterans understand that the overall meaning and importance of Veterans Day is falling. And simultaneously, we're trying to draw more Americans to the polls. And compared to most progressive democracies in the world, our turnout is still shamefully low. Some of it's apathy, but some of it's just an issue of logistics. We saw that this year. For many working Americans, especially those working more than one job, they can't take time away from work to vote. That often includes millions of veterans. So there's a basic, bold solution. Combine Election Day and Veterans Day. It's the ultimate way to truly support our vets and honor those who've died in combat by voting. There's nothing more patriotic, nothing more respectful, nothing more American. Generations of men and women in uniform have raised their right hands to serve. We've sacrificed for America. We've given everything. And now we're willing to donate our national holiday to improve and strengthen our democracy and the future of our nation. An overwhelming majority of veterans support the idea. And I believe that once most civilians are aware, they will too. It's a no-brain double benefit. Veterans Day would mean more, and so would Election Day. So help share and support the idea. Call your newly reelected or elected member of Congress and tell them to introduce it next year so we can start over together. If you can't fight over there, fight over here. Fight for your country, fight for your family, fight for yourself. That might mean being a hero when the moment calls, or it might mean just being an everyday hero by wearing a mask. The roads ahead are hard. And Chris Stapleton's lyrics lay it out. This might not be an easy time. There's rivers to cross and hills to climb. Some days we might fall apart. Some nights we might feel cold and dark. When nobody wins, afraid of losing. And the hard roads are the ones worth choosing. 
The hard ones are worth choosing. And there's still a very hard road ahead for all of us, no matter who you voted for. But that's in the past now. And as the great Norman Lear once taught me and shared on this show months ago, over and next, this is no time for a victory lap or for rubbing it in or for teasing and taunting the people who lost. Because if you do that, you're helping our enemies and hurting our country and ourselves. And a truly great angry American, the great Dave Chappelle, broke it down on Saturday Night Live. I would implore everybody who's celebrating the day to remember it's good to be a humble winner. Remember when I was here four years ago? Remember how bad that felt? Remember that half the country right now still feels that way. Please remember that. Remember that for the first time in the history of America, the life expectancy of white people is dropping because of heroin, because of suicide. All these white people out there that feel that anguish, that pain, that mad because they think nobody cares, and maybe they don't. Let me tell you something. I know how that feels. I promise you, I know how that feels. If you're a police officer, and every time you put your uniform on, you feel like you got a target on your back. You're appalled by the ingratitude that people have when you would risk your life to save them. Oh, man, believe me. Believe me. I know how that feels. Everyone knows how that feels. But here's the difference between me and you. You guys hate each other for that. And I don't hate anybody. I just hate that feeling. That's what I fight through. That's what I suggest you fight through. You got to find a way to live your life. You got to find a way to forgive each other. You got to find a way to find joy in your existence in spite of that feeling. So if your guy won, please don't gloat. If your guy lost, please don't fight. We're in this together, especially right now. In victory or in defeat, please stay frosty and increase the peace. The future of our country depends on it. And never forget how bad things were in this country over the last four years. We all need to teach our children to never forget, never forget, never forget, and never again. But the election is over. Even if lots of folks won't recognize it, it's over now. And it's time for what's next. And what's next will be hard, maybe even harder than what we've been through so far. But if we stick together, take care of each other, increase the peace, and keep the faith, we can get there together. The American Civil War lasted for four years, but Reconstruction lasted for decades and goes on still today. And every war eventually ends, except for the so-called global war on terror. But every real war ends. And this war against the virus will end too. And the war for the soul of our country will end. And just like every other war, Courageous people will emerge from the rubble to rebuild. And many of them will be kids. And many of them will be you. We will get through this. Starting over starts now. It's okay to be angry. And no, you're not alone. We're all a little angry. 
That's because we're paying attention. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. Thanks for listening. Starting over starts now. But we got to stay focused. We got to stay safe, stay frosty, and stay vigilant, America. America.